Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 22, and we're going to read verses 34 through 46, in which the Holy Scriptures read. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first, the great, this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin, as we look to God's word today? Father, we come before you today, and we ask that you would be our teacher and our guide. And so, Father, we just pray and ask that today that we would see the kingship of Jesus, that he is more than just a son of David, for he is the messianic son of the living God. And so, Father, we ask that this truth would permeate our minds and also our hearts, changing our souls from death to life. For those who may not know Christ, we ask that today would be the day of salvation, that they would come to see that Jesus is the one and true living hope by which they can come to finally love God and love their neighbors. And so, Father, we ask for resurrection life today, that that would be a part of this service, that you would raise the dead to life. Father, we pray for your people who are living, but who are struggling Father, we ask that today that they would return again to the gospel of grace, which allows them to love others as you've loved us. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. After years of planning and months of work and travel then, the British team of explorers had finally reached their destination deep within the jungles of Papua New Guinea. And the tribe that they finally met there deep within those jungles was a bit cautious of them and leery at first, but eventually they were friendly and excited to see them. In fact, it was only just a few days that they were invited into their tribe where the tribe even provided them with food, lodging, and water. And in return, the explorers then provided them with gifts. They, pro- they provided the tribe with medicine. And with technology, the tribe had never even dreamt of before. Over the next few weeks, this team of explorers went went on to share their lives with these tribesmen, where they learned much about their culture, about their beliefs, and their tribal practices. In fact, they were eventually invited in to be participants with the tribe in these practices. It was an unheard of thing. And so you could say the first contact with this tribe was quite successful. However, the following morning came along and they noticed something. They noticed that one of their expedition members had gone missing in the night and there wasn't even a trace. And when they asked the tribe if anyone had seen them, no one else seemed to know what had happened, except there was one small boy who said they saw them leave their tent at night, believing them to go use the restroom or a tree, Uh, but they saw them wander off in the night. And so it was then concluded that this person in their expedition team had been sadly lost by a large and dangerous predator, maybe a crocodile, which certainly there were no shortage of them nearby. And as sad as this was, though, the expedition team continued on and went on with daily life living in the tribe. But then a little over a week went by and it happened again another member of their expedition team went missing. And then a few nights later, another, and then another, and then another. 
Until finally the expedition team came to realize a horrifying truth. And the truth was this. It wasn't crocodiles that were eating their team members. It was the tribesmen themselves, for they were a tribe of cannibals. And though they seemed quite nice up front at first, they seemed invited and seemed so very thankful for the gifts that the the expedition team had given them, the truth was what they wanted most from the expedition team wasn't their medicine, it was them for food. You know, when we think of horrifying acts of human violence, I think it's fair to say that cannibalism is definitely in the top three. It's horrifying. It actually repulses us when we think about it. It's a crime against humanity, which the mantra of it goes like this, your life for mine. Whereas with other crimes, if you think about it, the mantra of stealing is merely your loss for my gain. And that's bad, but you can recover from that. Like there's, there's no take backs when it comes to cannibalism. Like if they eat you, you're dunsies, it's over with. And yet we find in human history, Numerous of terrifying examples where human beings will eat other human beings. They will devour them. And why? Because of a mentality that says, use your neighbor for yourself. Use your neighbor for yourself. And, you know, I was thinking about our passage this entire week, and you know what I concluded? This is actually a mentality that permeates so much more of human culture than it does in just mere cannibalistic tribes. This mentality, use your neighbor, your neighbor for yourself, though it's pretty obvious when it comes to cannibalism, the truth is biblically in God's eyes, it's the same exact mantra when it comes to all other forms of human selfishness. It, it absolutely is. It's all a form of cannibalism, which says, use your neighbor for yourself. Now, sure, we Americans are civilized. You know, we eat our chicken and our pork and our beef and things like that, but we don't literally cook and eat one another. However, the Bible tells us we sure do find pretty sinister ways of devouring one another all the same, don't we? In fact, in Galatians 5, 15, here's what the apostle Paul says. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The fact is, Spiritual cannibalism, the mantra of cannibalism, which says, use your neighbor for yourself, lies within every single human heart. And though it manifests differently and not often with the result of us literally consuming one another for dinner, it does result in other very difficult and very awful results all the same. Think about it. As we just said, cannibalism is the mentality that says, use your neighbor as yourself. So let me ask you, why is there war? Cannibalism, spiritual cannibalism within the human heart. Why is there divorce? Spiritual cannibalism within the human heart. Why is there child abuse? Why is there slander and gossip? It's because of spiritual cannibalism, which lies within every single human heart. And it's a mantra that says, use your neighbor for yourself. And this explains why there is so much infighting and division within our very much so divided world. And so is it any wonder that the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And yet, in our passage this morning, we do find the one who understands clearly how deceitful the human heart is, how desperately sick our condition is. Not only does this one understand it, but he actually understands the antidote for it. What is the antidote? Love. Love is the antidote for a cannibalistic mentality which says, use your neighbor for yourself, which is precisely what Jesus tells us in our passage this morning. And so if we are going to be cured from this spiritual cannibalism, as the great theologian from the Beatles, John Lennon, once put it, all you need is love. See, we don't rip on the Beatles every week. We make them in a positive, look in a positive light once in a while. However, uh, we need much more than just a vague general expression of love. Like, what, is, what does it mean? What, what kind of love are you talking about? Well, for that, we look to Jesus's answer in Matthew chapter 22, where we find that the kind of love we need that will cure us from our spiritual cannibalism comes in three doses. And here's what it is. 
To be cured from our spiritual cannibalism, we first need a dose of love for the king, secondly, love for the king's image, and then finally, love for the king's son. If you have your Bibles, look with me at verses 34 through 36 again. I'm going to read them for us. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him, saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? The past several weeks, we've been looking at Jesus' debates with the religious leaders. And first, we saw that they approached him with a question about taxes. They, they said, all right, Jesus, tell us whose side you're on. Do we pay the taxes to Caesar or not? And they were trying to trap him with this question, in which Jesus brilliantly responds to them saying what? Render to the things that which is Caesar and that to God, which is God's. And he do so by showing them a Roman coin. Then last week, we saw the question about marriage from the Sadducees, where we learned from these Sadducees, and you remember why they're called the Sadducees, it's because they're so sad that there's no resurrection, remember, they don't believe in the resurrection, and they approach Jesus with this ridiculous, uh, what did we call it here, ad absurdium question, where they said, all right, riddle me this, Jesus, we have a woman who was married to a husband, he died, and then the next one died, and the next one died all the way down to the seventh. In the resurrection, who is she married to? Hmm, see, no resurrection. It's quite silly, right? In which Jesus looked at them and also gave a brilliant answer saying, you don't get it, guys. There is no marriage in the kingdom. We are like the angels when it comes to this. There will be no marriage. There will be no procreation. We won't be angels. I know we've heard that at funerals. It's not true. They're not an angel now. But in that regard, we will be like the angels. It's gonna be a totally different reality then we can comprehend when it comes to what exactly we will be like in our resurrected bodies. And we saw that last week. And so today we come to their last question. So I wasn't, I got it wrong and then I thought I was right, but it's actually three questions from them and a question from Jesus. That's how I did the math wrong. If you were here with us last week when we had to print a retraction on my bad mathematics, but it wasn't that bad. Three questions from them, one question then from Jesus. So after these three questions, Jesus reciprocates a question of his own to them, which as we're going to see, spoiler alert, results in checkmate, game over. No more questions, they're dunsies. Like they will not approach Jesus again publicly to ask him any questions. And the only place we'll find them asking him any more questions is at his trial. And those are not real questions, right? There's no crowd around. They're just trying to kill him and which they go on to do. <clears throat> and so the question we have here in our passage this morning is an issue that was often debated and discussed by the religious leaders. And we need to realize like some of the background info for these questions, okay? They didn't just pop up randomly. They come out of a long conversation that was going on in Jesus's time, all right? So what we need to realize is the teachers of Jesus's day, they had identified 613 commandments. Some of you thought, oh, I thought there was only 10. No, there were 613 of these bad boys, and they were very, very difficult to follow. In fact, they were so difficult that when they were debating these laws, they, they first off broke them into 248 positive laws, you must do this, and 365 negative laws, which was don't do that. And then of all those laws in those two categories, they started acting like a bunch of kids picking you know, their teammates for a football game and saying, these are the laws you have to follow. These are the ones you don't have to follow. You should try to do them, but you know what? If you don't do it, no big deal. Who can keep up with 613 laws? Come on. Like that was the mentality. And so what they did is they came up with these heavy laws, they called them, and light laws, which were less important. Now, before we laugh too hard or roll our eyes, are we any different? Not really. We may not come up with a special category where we officially say to one another, oh, you broke that one? That's not a big deal. No, we just kind of roll with things and we have our heavy laws and light laws, though we don't have them officially. They're unofficial heavy and light laws. But that's another sermon. We're not going to preach that one today. But with this context in mind, the scribes ask Jesus a question. They say, Jesus, of these 613 laws, what's the most important of all of them? And were they asking this question in sincerity? No. Like they're giving him false flattery once again, saying, oh, teacher, tell us which one is the greatest law. Not because they wanted to know, but because they wanted to trap him. They wanted to make him lose persuasion and influence and favor amongst the people. And in response, what does Jesus say? Look at verses 37 through 38. And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart 
and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Well, did Jesus get it right? At least, in, of course, he got it right. He's God. But according to them, did, they get it, did he get it right? Yep. And we see that in Luke's account, which is why in Mark's, not Luke's, Mark, sorry. In Mark's gospel, slow down. In Mark's gospel, the scribe responds and he says, well done, you got it right, Jesus. And he got it right because everyone knew that the greatest law above all the laws came from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 5, which say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This first part of Jesus's answer wasn't actually that profound to them. Right? Some of the other ones, I mean, they were profound. They were marveling when they walked away. They didn't know what to make of it. But this one here, this was something that every good Jewish boy already knew the answer to. <clears throat> if any of you taught Sunday school, right, or were in Sunday school, what is the one answer every kid knows is the answer to almost every question? Jesus, right? Like, that's the answer. Like, we'll do in family worship, and I will ask the kids what they want for pizza or for, for dinner, and they're like, Jesus. I'm like, wait, hold on, No. We're done with family worship. You know, that's how it goes. Like, it's just, that's the answer that comes out. Well, for every good Jewish boy, this would have been like their form of the Jesus answer they gave back then. They knew this really, really well. However, did you notice what also is included with the answer? The details of the answer. They include the details with the answer. See, a lot of people today claim they love God, right? There's very few people who are gonna say, no, I hate that guy. Me and him are not cool. Very few people will say it. They're like, oh yeah, I love God. I believe in him. Sure. But what do you mean by loving God? Well, Jesus tells us what it should mean, or at least how we are to love God. And what he tells us is that it involves three things. All of our heart, not some. All of our soul, not part. And all of our mind. And boy, is this profound. The biggest struggle I had this week was deciding whether or not to just focus on these three things and preach a sermon on them, and, or to go on and include it all in. It's a tough decision, so I don't know if we made the right one. We'll find out. But you know what the problem here is? Most of us have heard this answer way too many times. And so it's like water off a duck's back. We hear it and we're like, oh yeah, I know about that. I'm supposed to love God with all my soul, all my mind, all my strength. Sure, yeah, got it, sweet. What's on TV? Right? It's just, it's too close to us. And so what we're going to try to do here is slow down and look at this passage as if it's the first time our eyes have ever seen it before. And so to help us do that, I'm going to recategorize these, right? We're not going to have, we're not going to make this one sermon. We're just going to have a sermon within a sermon, okay? So when it comes to this, we have three things. We're going to recategorize it this way. And so here's our mini outline for our first point. When it comes to loving God, we cannot love the God we don't know. We cannot love the God we don't obey. And third, we cannot love the God that we do not delight in. Everybody got that? Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, how long is this sermon going to be anyways? He's got two outlines today, all right? Well, I can promise you that we will be done by the time Rosie starts having dinner rolling out here for supper tonight. So don't worry about it. We won't miss supper. Let's look at this first one. Have you ever heard anybody say this before? Boy, I love Jesus, but doctrine, theology, I just don't really care for doctrine and theology. I'm just all about, about Jesus. Anybody ever heard this? How about all the time? Like all the time. And I'm sure you've heard it as well. And you probably already know this, but it's a totally ridiculous thing to say. It's absolutely ridiculous to say. Now, here's the thing. You're not supposed to put up pictures of yourself very often, especially of your wife, without getting permission. Aw, Adorable. They're doing all the work. But here's the thing. I, uh, I didn't get approval for this, but it was on her Facebook page, so I feel it's fair game, all right? Here's, here's the thing, though. If I said to you, you know, my wife Becky, if I said, the thing I love about my wife, I mean, you've heard this illustration before, I'm sure, but if I said, you know, the thing I love about Becky the most is her, man, her dark hair is so dark. The thing, you can't see her eyes very much, but if I say the thing I love about her most is her blue eyes, I'm going to get one of these wrong and I'm going to be in trouble. And the other thing I love about her is that she's the same height as me. Just love that. It's my favorite thing about her, her, her long, dark hair, her blonde eyes, and the fact that we stand eye to eye. 
you'd be like, I don't know who you're talking about, bro, but that's not your wife, right? Like the details matter. So when it comes to God, why would the details be any less important? They wouldn't be is the answer. And here's the thing. You cannot love the God you do not know. You cannot love the God you do not know. Like, think about this. Try this sometime. Pick a random name in the phone book. I think they still make those. But just pick some random name in the phone book. I'm going to love John McGillicuddy. That's the, I'm going to love them. I'm going to care for them. Right? You can't do it. You, why? Because you don't know them. You don't know them. You cannot love somebody you do not know. You just can't do it. Think about this. What happens if you claim to love God and then you find out, let's get the picture off the screen before I get in trouble. If you claim to love God, what happens if you find out that the God that you claim to love is actually not even close to who that actual God is? What happens? Well, you're going to be pretty disillusioned, aren't you? If, he's, if he loves the things you hate and he hates the things you love, there's going to be a problem in that relationship, right? And really, there's going to be a problem because the God that you've claimed to love isn't actually the God who exists. It's a false God. It's a God made in your own image, which is biblically called what? Idolatry. It's idolatry to love a God who's made in our own image because it's really just a way of loving ourselves. So we cannot love the God we do not know. And so then we must make it our life's mission to know the God we must love. And how do we come to know who this God is? The scripture, God's perfect word. He has spoken and therefore we can know him. For if he had not spoken, would we be able to know him? No, said the church, not even a little bit. We wouldn't have a clue. We would have come up with a God totally different than the God of the Bible. And the more I study the Bible, the more I believe that is absolutely true because the God of the Bible, the Jesus especially that we find in the New Testament, nobody could have made him up. He is radically unique. He is humble yet strong. He is caring yet bold. I mean, look at all of these different dynamics going on in the person of Jesus Christ. He does not respond at all how we would think he would. And that's because he's not made up. It's because he is the one and true and living God. We cannot love the God we do not know. And so we must make it our life's mission to know him. And we know him through God's perfectly written book, which is inspired by him called the Bible. This is why we must be people of the book, people of the book, which the book is the Bible, not people of books about the book, right? Like, if you only read the guidebook that helps you understand the background info and things about the book, you're actually a lover of guidebooks, not a lover of the book, right? And don't get me wrong, I love books about the book. I absolutely do, but think about this. Anybody here into taking vitamins? Every time I even think I got a cold coming on, I'm down in vitamin C like they're candy, right? And I love vitamins. They're extremely helpful, I think. I know some people disagree, but whatever. I, if it's placebo, it still works. But here's the thing. I think vitamins are very effective. But you know what's going to happen if dinner comes around? I say, you know what? I think I need some vitamins. I feel cold coming on. And I take my vitamins. And that's all I do. And then the next day comes along. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm feeling kind of hungry. You know that? Like, open up my vitamin drawer, pull out 700 vitamins I got. And that's Becky. She loves it. And I just have all the vitamins again. And I do that day after day after day, and yet I sit there hungry. What am I? I'm a fool (laughs) because I'm going for nutrition and I'm going for sustenance through vitamins, which are not meant to provide the nutrition that only food can provide. It's the same thing with the Bible. And so books about the book, they're like vitamins. They're absolutely helpful, and you'd be really silly to ignore them. But if you only go to the books about the book, but never the book itself, you're like the person who's going to vitamins, not the word of God. And you need both, especially the word of God. As the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon once said, he said, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. And that should be our approach, church. And why? Many reasons, but for one, as the psalmist said, as David said, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And it's a light that allows us to see who God is, to see who the God is that we are to love. And we cannot love the God we cannot see. 
Love of God involves so much more than knowing who the God of the Bible is. But hear me when I say this, it is not less than this. It's not. It's so much more than that. Getting all your facts right and and figuring out who Yahweh is, is extremely important. But Christianity, it's not less than this. Love of God involves so much more. Show me a person then who doesn't love God's word and I'll show you someone who doesn't love God. I'll say that again. Show me a person who doesn't love the word of God and I'll show you a person who does not love God despite what they claim. And why do I say that? Is that a hot take? Is that an exaggerative statement? No. It's because you cannot love somebody you don't know. And not only that, you cannot love a God you do not obey, which leads us to our second mini point. When it comes to loving God, we cannot love the God we don't know. And secondly, we cannot love the God we don't obey. I just want to rattle through a few verses here, if that's fine. Let's look at John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them. So whoever knows my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. John 14, 15. If you love me, okay, if then clause here, if you love me, then what? You will keep my commandments. That's what it says. How about James, the half-brother of Jesus? Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Why not? Lest you deceive yourselves. You're deceived if you are not a doer of the word and a hearer only, which means you have all the intellectual knowledge there is about God and who he is, and yet you don't do it. You're deceived is what James says. One more, 1 John 2, 3. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. What if we keep his commandments? Love of God is so much more than a feeling. It's so much more than an emotion. For love requires surrender. Love requires surrender, which is why even in the Great Commission, you know what it tells us? It tells us to make disciples of all nations who do what? Who obey all that I have commanded you. That's what it says. Make disciples of all nations who obey all that I have commanded you. That's what a disciple is. They follow their teacher, even if it means picking up their cross, right? Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple unless you pick up your cross and follow me. That's obedience, even difficult obedience. And if they're unwilling to do so, the inverse of that is they cannot be his disciple. In marriage counseling, do you know the number one problem I find that lies at the center of marital problems? They, they certainly manifest in different forms, but ultimately the ultimate problem is a lack of surrender. It's an attitude that says, my love has limits. I've got my rights, you know. It's an attitude that says, I'll love so long as it's not too inconvenient. So long as this relationship continues to pay me personally, as long as there's an advantage, then deal will continue on. But here's the thing. True love is not selfless. Selfish. It's selfless. True love is not selfish. It's selfless. Give him a sec. The truth is, the truth is, we love the God. We cannot love the God we don't know. We can only love the God we know, which translates then directly into obedient love that serves God and his desires over our desires. He's trying to out-preach me. (laughs) Sorry, it's distracting me. All right, so let's keep going on here. When it comes to loving God, we cannot love the God we don't know. And second off, we cannot love the God we don't obey. And third, we cannot love the God we don't delight in. According to James' logic, here's what it is. Knowing God but not obeying God makes you what? Makes you have demon faith. That's all it is. Knowing who God is, but not loving God for who he is, gives you merely demon faith. See, the thing is, demons went to the best seminary on the planet. They went to heaven seminary, but they don't obey, do they? Not at all. But do you know what? When it comes to God and obeying him, 
If you are not delighting in your obedience, you know what that makes you? It makes you a Pharisee. It makes you someone who wants to use God for what he can give you. And I think we started with a word for that, and I think we called it cannibalism. For that's what it is. It's spiritual cannibalism. Because spiritual cannibalism says, use your neighbor for yourself. And when you take that mentality and you apply it to religion and God, is it any different? No, it's just doing that with one more relationship, which is the ultimate relationship, saying, you exist for my good, for my joy. Let me ask you, are churches full of spiritual cannibals? Absolutely they are. It is full of people who show up to church with the mentality that says, all right, God, I'm doing what you said. I wanted to sleep in, but what do you got for me? I'm, I'm doing it. I'm obeying. What do I get? Hear me when I say this. That's not Christianity. It's just not. That's idolatry, as we said, because the truth is a spiritual cannibal is trying to use God to devour him for sustenance for selfish reasons, which is a really foolish thing to do because God is actually our ultimate need and the only one who can satisfy our ultimate longing. Do you remember back in Matthew chapter four, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan to turn rocks into bread? Do you remember what Jesus said to Satan? He said this, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so until you come to realize that God is the only bread you need, you will not delight in him for you will delight in other breads. You will see him as a tool to bring you the bread you truly want. That's how you're going to view God. You won't delight in him. You won't love him. Instead, you'll use him and you'll abuse him. And not only that, but there isn't a prayer of a chance that you'll go on to do what you're supposed to do next, which is to love those who bear his image, which leads us to our second big point. Done with mini outline here. To be cured from our spiritual cannibalism, we need a dose of love for the king, and secondly, a love for the king's image. Look at verse 37. Let's back up there, and we'll read through verse 40. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is remarkable. Have you ever noticed how when people don't like a past president or a current president or a governor, have you ever noticed how they lash out against them? See, they can't pull up to the Capitol, either in D.C. or in Minnesota, and go in there and unload, right? Maybe not with guns, but you know what I mean, like verbally or whatever. Maybe, I don't know. But you know what I'm saying? Like, they can't do that. And so what do they do instead? They find the next best thing, a billboard or a statue, right? Like, I know of a recent president, I'm not going to say names here, but every time I see one of his signs along the highway, I think, ah, I didn't get that one yet. And sure enough, within a month or two, I drive by and I see that it's been spray painted or knocked down. And do you know why that is? <clears throat> it's because when people can't attack the person they hate, they go for the next best thing, which is something made in that person's image. Why do we slander? Why do we gossip? Why do we tear others down with an air of superiority? Is it because we hate statues and billboards so much? No. It's because we hate the person in front of us because they are an image bearer of the true person that we hate. You ever thought of that? It's absolutely true. Here's what 1 John 4.20 says. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, what is he? He's a liar. They're a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he can see cannot love the God whom he, cannot, whom he has not seen. There's a cool word that I learned this week, and it's the word pettifogging. Anybody know what that means? It's the word pettifogging. And when I read it, I didn't even need to look up the definition of this word to know that me and this word were going to be really good friends, Okay. It's a cool sounding word, but as cool sounding as the word pettifogging is, the definition is pretty good too. Here's what it is. Pettifogging, placing undue emphasis on petty details. That's a good word. 
What happens when the pettifoggers come to church? I'll tell you exactly what happens. Suddenly, everybody is hyper-concerned for the petty details of what is happening. Pettifoggers will say things like this. I'm never, I may come to church once in a while, but I'm never going to get involved. I'm never going to join. You know what happened last time I did that? I got taken advantage of. People were quite rude to me. Let me tell you, I wanted blue carpet, they wanted red, and that was not very nice. You know, maybe, it, maybe it's not something that's trivial, that maybe it's something very serious even. Maybe they were downright rude and gossiped and slandered about you. But you know what? Let me tell you this. We have a line for people like that, for people who have been abused and taken advantage of within the church. And you know who's at the front of that line? Well, it's first off Christ, but you know who's second in line? I would almost venture to say in every church, it's the pastor. I would venture to say it's almost in every church that you will go up to the pastor and if he could unload the stories of the ways that he's been taken advantage of, you would be like, well, why are you pastoring even? Are you a sucker for punishment? Like, what is the deal here? Glutton for punishment. There we go. What's the deal here? The reality is when we sign up to follow Christ, we're signing up to not be pettifoggers. We're signed up to be taken advantage of. We're, you know, we're not going to invite it into our life, certainly, but the reality is if you're going to get close to anybody, they are going to hurt you. And why would it be any different with the church? It wouldn't be as the answer. And so, yes, I am absolutely sorry that you were treated the way you were treated. It shouldn't have happened. It was sin against God and you. It should not have been done. But I say this with love, and are you ready to hear it? Quit being a pettifogger. Stop being a pettifogger, okay? Like rub some dirt in it, walk it off, and get back to work serving God because he's worth it. He is worth living our life for and even dying for. Serve Christ, remembering that how Christ served us, the church, a church whom he loved so much that he willingly laid down his life for her. Not while we were all white, pristine, and beautiful either. The scriptures tell us that he died for us while we were still enemies of God. You see that? He served us while we were still his enemies. So don't you think we can come into a church where people who haven't outright said they're our enemies who are going to mistreat us and say, you know what? I'm not going to be a pettifogger. I'm going to love you and serve you regardless. Yeah, I'm not going to ignore sin. We're going to take it seriously. But you know what? I'm not going to turn my back on the church because Christ never turned his back on the church. You see the logic here, how this works? Now do you see why Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, do what? Turn to him the other. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak too. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Not those who are nice to you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so you may be sons of the father who is in heaven. This is what sons and daughters of the king do. They love those who hate them. That's what he's telling us here. For if you love those who love you, do even the tax collectors not do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, What more are you doing than others? Do even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, for your heavenly Father is perfect. This is what we're called to. This is what we're called to. The love of God must and will manifest in love for others, not pettifogging. Yes, let's get our doctrine right. Yes, let's kill our sin and strive to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. But if that's where it ends, hear me when I say this, then we do not have love and we are simply using our good doctrine and good service to cannibalize others. That's all it is. 1 Corinthians 13, one through seven says this, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And even if I have all prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as even to move mountains, but I have not love, what am I? I am nothing. I am nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. 
It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings. And boy, is there a sermon in that expression. But it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Church, love gives the benefit of the doubt. Love gives the benefit of the doubt. When you hear something about somebody that, that is a part of your church or part of your life, you don't think, oh yeah, I could see them doing that. <laughs> no, you think, oh no, please God, no. I hope, I hope that's not true. Love gives the benefit of the doubt. And even when it sees reasons to be concerned or disheartened, it persists in love, hoping for that person's good. Let me give you an example of this. It comes from Acts chapter seven. And as they were stoning Stephen, as they were stoning him, as they were killing him, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, as the rocks came and came and came, he cried out with a loud voice saying, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, which means he died. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now, maybe you're here and you're thinking, all right, preacher, you make a good, compelling argument. I'm going to do it. I'm going to love God with all my heart and I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. Good. Glad to hear you're interested in trying that. But if that's you, hear Jesus' words to the scribe, which we find in Mark's account. He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far from the kingdom of God. If you say, sign me up, I'm going to love God and my neighbor as myself. He says, you're not in the kingdom of God. You're not far from the kingdom of God, right? That's what he says in Mark's account. But here's the thing. Being not far or being close, we might say, the reality is you're not close enough, right? Being close only counts in two things that as far as I know, it's horseshoes and hand grenades. Everything else, especially the gospel, does not count. So you can strive for this kind of love until you're blue in the face and you know what's gonna happen? One day you eventually will literally be blue in the face and you'll die and you will only still be close to the kingdom but not in it. Because what will really have happened in all of your moralistic self-effort is you starve yourself as a spiritual cannibal. Because the truth is the cure for spiritual cannibalism requires more than love. It requires a love that is the foundation and the fuel of these other two loves, which are loving God and neighbor as yourself, which leads us to our final point. To be cured from our spiritual cannibalism, we need a dose of love for the king, a love for the king's image, and then finally here, a love for the king's son. Verse 41 through 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Oh, how the tables have turned, huh? What do you think about the Christ? He said, whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. In Matthew's account, if you don't read the other gospel accounts of this, of this passage, it seems like this question of Jesus is kind of at random, right? Like, like, that's an interesting question. What's that have to do with everything else? But in Mark's account, it's pretty clear why Jesus brings this question up. Because in Mark's account, the scribe, when he responds to Jesus, here's what he says. He says, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that God is one and there is no one besides him. Do you see what he focused in on with his answer? It wasn't, you're right, we do need to love God and our neighbor as ourselves. How do we do that? That wasn't, no, it was, you're right, teacher, God is one. Why did the scribe focus on the oneness of God here? It was definitely intentional. And it was intentional because the scribes, what did they have to say about Jesus's notion of being the son of God? the son of David. They said, no way, no how. 
And so that is why Jesus brings up this question, which is a question referencing Psalm 110 about who the son of David, the Messiah truly is. That's what he's quoting. And in that Psalm, David, in the spirit of God, he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So here's the thing. If Messiah is merely a great human leader who is the descendant of David, why is David calling him Lord? That doesn't make any sense. You don't call one of your descendants Lord. You might, it might make sense for a future descendant to call David Lord, but it makes absolutely no sense for the Messiah, the, the descendant of David, to be calling, for David to be calling his descendant Lord. And so if Messiah is merely a great human leader who's a descendant of David, then why would David be doing this? You don't call your descendants that. And the religious leaders, they understood this. And when Jesus pointed this out, they were dumbstruck by it. They had nothing to say. And not only that, and here's the other part of Jesus' question is, why is the Lord Yahweh God telling David's Lord, this human descendant of Messiah, why is he saying to him, come sit at my right hand till I make your enemies sit at your footstool? This is in Psalm 110. This is in the Old Testament. The seat at the right hand of God is a position of absolute power, privilege, and position. And that does not make any sense at all if the Messiah, the son of David, is merely just the son of David. But do you know what does make that make perfect sense? If the son of David is also the divine son of Yahweh God, then it makes absolute sense. And yet in light of this obvious answer, what do the religious leaders do in response? Look at verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Checkmate, game over. And yet, how do these Pharisees, these scribes, these religious leaders respond? They knock the game over and walk away. (laughs) They're source boards. They don't want the truth. They're not interested in the truth of who God is. And Jesus had shown them without any doubt that they didn't love the God they claimed to love. They loved a God instead who was made in their own image, which is no God at all. For not only did they not know God, not only did they not truly obey God, but ultimately they did not delight in him as God. For if they truly knew God, they would have and should have known about God's triune nature. They would have read Genesis 1.1 and seen how, it named, how the name for God there is Elohim. And in the, when you conjugate this thing, you look at it, it's actually in the plural, not in the singular. It's in the plural, not the singular. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They would have realized that this was plural. And they would have realized that the action, what was happening here, this created is in the singular. And they've been like, wait a minute, what's Moses doing here? Why has he got a plural for God and then a singular here to follow with? The, if you know grammar at all, you know what I'm talking about. But they would have recognized this and been like, that's weird. And then when they got down to verse 26 of Genesis chapter one, they would have read where it says, let us make man in our own image. Isn't that cool? They would have read that. And then when they got to the, very passage that Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy 6.4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They would have noticed the word there for God also can refer to a plurality. And so when the second and the third member of the divine trinity shows up in the flesh, they should have and would have expected it. For how else could David in the spirit of God, which is the third member of the Trinity, say, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And the reason is, church, it's because our God, our marvelous God, is three in one. He's three in one. Don't ask me to make sense of that. I can't do it. For he is God the Father, he is God the Son, and he is God the Holy Spirit. Three distinct beings within the single being of the Godhead. Each part of the Godhead are fully and fully and equally God. And they, having decreed from before the foundation of the world that the Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity, would be born so that he might die to save the world. And when this mission was complete, the second person of the Trinity, Christ, he would 
sit down at the right hand of the Father, knowing that one day so very soon all of his enemies would be his footstool. Hebrews 10, 12 through 14. Now you know why I asked you to pay attention to our catechism verse more. Says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This Christmas season, I ask you, have you been sanctified by the final and perfect sacrifice? For it alone is the only way for us spiritual cannibals to be healed. And without that, loving God and loving our neighbor is not on the table. It's not. You can delude yourself into it, thinking you're doing it, but you're not. The question is, have you accepted his offering? Either way, know that one day soon, Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, the one and only righteous branch who is the son of David and the son of God will execute justice and righteousness in the land upon all those who stubbornly refuse to love God, which was made flesh. Jeremiah 23, five through six says this, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. What? The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. Is Christ, the son of David, your righteousness? Have you received his love? For it is his love alone that can cure us. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this beautiful and glorious text and for the privilege to stand before your people and proclaim the truths within it. Father, I ask that you would work in a mighty way, that your spirit would bless, not only bless your people, but that you would call new lives to you, that there would be spiritual birth today for those who think they are loving God and loving their neighbors, and they're doing it by their moralistic efforts, I ask that they would realize that that is a futile endeavor. Cannot do it. So I ask that they would turn to the one love, which is manifested in your Son, who alone empowers us to finally love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. And then, out of that understanding and that love, go on to love our neighbor as ourselves. Though imperfectly, we ask that you would enable us to do so. Empower us through your spirit, to do the impossible, for we know you surely can. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This time we're going to begin the Lord's Supper. I'm going to ask if the ushers would come and pass out the elements.